Bella and Cassidy and Johnny Johnson, the first two Maoris to be saved in Ellerslie, opened up a whole new dimension in our faith and ministry. Johnny was suffering from a mysterious illness which no one could diagnose. His brown skin was unnaturally dark, and he'd lost a great deal of weight. Johnny knew he was being affected by a Maori curse for which there is no cure apart from God. He came for prayer after a Sunday evening service. Ray, do you think you can help me? He pleaded. The elders of my tribe have placed a curse on me, and I am dying. His voice was weak and desperate. Ray felt angry at the devil. Why should this fiend take the life of a son of God? Ray and Frank took Johnny out to a side room to pray for him. They knew that if they didn't break this curse, he would die for sure. But they also knew God's power was greater than the evil of a curse. Johnny, you will not die, Ray assured him. God's power is greater than any curse. We will set you free in Jesus' name. You believed God while we pray for you. Johnny threw himself on his knees. Ray addressed the demon in a loud voice. I command you, demon, to leave this servant of God. Johnny was thrown into a supernatural rocking motion as the spirit resisted. Suddenly his face lit up. It's gone. I felt it go. In two days his skin had lightened to its normal color. In a week he had gained 14 pounds. From then on, Johnny determined to be all out for God which meant listening to the voice of the Holy Spirit concerning his family situation. It's time I got married, he told the pastors with an embarrassed look on his face. Married, Frank exclaimed in surprise. You're not married? What about your eight children? Johnny grinned sheepishly. Well, I've just never got around to getting married, but now I want to. He was very definite about it. The date was set for three weeks ahead. Friends and relatives from all over the country would gather at his house, the most convenient place for the ceremony, and the hangi which would follow. The day dawned bright and fair. Preparations began early in the morning, with Johnny and his friends digging a shallow pit in the backyard. In this, they would cook the wedding feast. They loaded legs of pork and a dozen chickens, kumeras, potatoes, pumpkin, and corn onto red-hot stones and tossed in some water, once the hangi was covered with snacks and soil so that no steam could escape, he turned his attention to preparations for the ceremony. The children dressed excitedly in their new clothes. This was an important occasion. We arrived fifteen minutes before the service was time to start. People were beginning to drift in slowly. Obviously, the wedding would be in Maori time, probably starting an hour after it was time to. Ray went looking for the bridegroom. Where is your marriage license? I need to fill it in the register. License? Do I have to have a license to get married? Johnny looked bewildered. Yes, you do, Johnny. You can't get married without one. Well, brother, I haven't got one. What shall we do now? Ray looked heavenwards. This was the moment for some divine revelation. Everyone had come for a celebration. Well, they'd have one. Let's dedicate the children, Ray suggested. The idea was taken up enthusiastically. The children stood with their parents, who promised to train them for God. Hands were laid on their heads as the pastor prayed. The wedding feast became a dedication party, and nobody worried about a thing. 
The wedding had to wait until another day. I never did find out which day. It was Bella Cassidy who really opened the door for us to minister to the Maoris. When she saw what was happening in the Ellerslie Tamaki Faith Mission, she thought of her own people in Northland. Sickness was rife and sin was destroying their homes and families. They needed to hear about this Jesus who was changing the lives of so many. She'd go on a visit to tell them. Bella's words met with a good deal of skepticism. Their prophet Ratana had performed many miracles, but they stopped when he died. Bella discussed the situation with the Martins, a Methodist family who had been baptized with the Holy Spirit in Ellerslie. They agreed it would be a good idea if Ray visited the Pa. They would ask the elders to give their permission for Ray to come. The elders questioned the Pakiha's motives and sincerity, but finally they were persuaded that his visit could do nothing but good. Ray little knew the mission field which would open up to us as he turned his blue Austin northwards. These would be amongst the most crucial meetings of his life. He was well aware the people would sit in judgment on him this first night. They would measure his love for them and the reality of the things he preached. If you failed to reach their standards, the door would close perhaps forever. For the whole 150 miles, he prayed desperately. Lord, give me favor with these people, that they will hear the message which will change their lives and bring them health and peace. After three and a half hours driving, he found the sign pointing to Wyomeo. He swung the car onto the metal road leading up the valley. Excitement ran through his body as he anticipated the extraordinary events he was sure the Holy Spirit would grant these people. The hills of the valley were lush and green, for everywhere were signs of neglect. Fencing hung limply between the posts while the wires known to the locals and Taranaki gates barely contained the stock. Shabby houses dotted the landscape. The peaceful atmosphere belied the true situation of the people. Waiomio was known to the townspeople of nearby Kawakawa as Drunkard's Valley. They were right. Every Sunday, forty taxes loaded with beer came into that valley. Wife-beating and adultery were prevalent. That might have been all right if you were not the wife, but it certainly didn't bring happiness. There is misery everywhere, Bella told Ray. He believed the message of deliverance would change all of this. He turned into the Martin's gate beside the meeting house. God, fill that meeting house with your glory in an unprecedented way, he pleaded. He had a feeling that would happen. Sister Martin welcomed him with all the courtesy of the Maori people. She gave the man of God the best room in the house, with a window looking right down the valley. To his amazement, people were already arriving at the meeting house. They were coming on tractors and on horseback. Others were walking while old Zephyr cars, so loved by the Maoris, disgorged their human cargo. Ray looked at his watch. Why, it's only 5.30. The meeting isn't time to start for another two hours. Something good is going to happen here tonight, he decided. By the time the meeting did start, the seating in the meeting house was crammed with an overflow sitting on the flax mats covering the floor. As tradition demanded, the elders made their speeches of welcome. We have little to offer you, they said, but we expect much from you. 
I have come to preach the gospel and heal your sick, Ray replied. We are looking for faith, and wherever we find it, it is directed to God. Through Christ, there will come salvation and healing in his name. That night, 80 people prayed the sinner's prayer. The prayer line stretched right round the building. He made it very clear that healing could only be expected to be permanent if they would go on with God. God will not heal you to serve the devil, Ray told them. In the move which followed, God touched every home in the valley, except the Tahungas. He kept well away, preferring his witchcraft to the gospel. Was he not the one entrusted with tribal secrets to Tapu, sacred, for the remainder of the tribe to know? Besides, his close relationship with the gods gave him supernatural powers. He was not about to lose these by accepting the gospel. The Tahunga is angry at the people forsaking his counsel for the gospel of Jesus Christ, Sister Martin told Ray. But we want the freedom of Jesus, not the powers and the unhappiness of darkness. Ray returned to Ellerslie for his Sunday meetings. Frank, this is revival. You must come up to Wyomio. I need your help. That's impossible, Ray. I can't just come like that. I have the responsibility of my job. Deep in his heart, Frank longed to go. Perhaps this was time to voice the feeling he'd been experiencing for some weeks. He was sure the Holy Spirit was prodding him into changing direction. Yes, he'd tell Ray now. Ray, I really feel it is time for me to return to the ministry in a full-time capacity. Ray objected strongly. Frank, how will you live? You know the church can't support you. The people have not yet learned to tithe. We knew that Ray and Althea were living by faith themselves, but the voice of God was insistent. Frank and I talked the matter over. If this was what God wanted, we must obey. Anyway, hadn't the children and I lived for three months with very little income only a year ago? God had cared for us then. He would do the same now. Yet, what if this congregation believed like so many who seemed to say, God, you keep him humble, we'll keep him poor. Frank had believed that theory himself. Pastors should be poor. Now God was showing him another biblical truth. He would supply all our needs according to his riches and glory. Well, Frank, like the apostles of old, we will share what comes in and believe God for the rest. Ray was again his generous self. Enough money flowed in to keep us from want, although our faith was stretched to the limit at times. Now we were free to fully support Ray in this spreading revival. We could answer the call from other places. For weeks, the men traveled between Auckland and Wyomio, preaching, following up converts with teaching to establish them in the faith. The revival in Wyomio intensified. People amazed us at the way they would sit for up to three hours on backless forms waiting for the meeting to begin. It would be another three hours before the meeting ended. Frank or Ray began to use the waiting time for a period of teaching to ground the people in the faith. It was hard to get them established. I will have to hit you on the head with a bottle to send you to heaven before you can backslide again, Frank once said to some young men who had come to rededicate their lives to Christ for the fourth time. I learned some lessons of my own during this revival. One night, a woman crippled 
for years with arthritis, was carried into the meeting and propped against the wall. She moaned with pain at every moment. How she sat on the floor during the sermon, no one knew. Could God heal a woman crippled as long and as badly as that? I asked myself, skeptical as usual. Well, Lord, just don't ask me to be involved. God gave me something else to do. As I sat very much the onlooker, Sister Minnie Nakodi brought a 16-year-old girl over to me. Sister Houston, will you pray for this girl? I was horrified, but as I was the evangelist's wife, pride would not let me refuse. I offered a silent prayer. This has to be you, Lord. You know I have nothing to give. I placed my hand on her head, repeating aloud the words I had often heard the men say. Lord, heal this girl from the crown of her head to the soles of her feet in Jesus' name. Amen. Slowly, I felt her head slip from beneath my hand. Horrors! She's fallen to the floor. I knew that had to be God, for it certainly wasn't me. Never again would I question the phenomena, even when I suspected that someone had acted from their own desire. Had the men noticed? They appeared to be too busy praying for the crippled woman. But I forgot to be embarrassed when I heard the crippled woman scream. Her friends rushed across to where she was sitting. Are these men hurting you? They cried. As she leapt to her feet, they realized the Lord was healing her. The congregation clapped and stamped their feet and shouted, Praise God! The men decided the converts must be baptized before we returned to Auckland. The people took us over the rise from the meeting house to the nearest water, a stream with many deep pools. We chose a pool waist deep where the water flowed smoothly. When everyone had gathered on the banks, the meaning of water baptism was explained to them. I glanced across the crowd. What is this? I couldn't believe my eyes. The dress of the candidates was rather startling. Underpants, petticoats, dresses, jeans. In fact, almost any old thing which would cover them. Why didn't we think to bring the white lace-trimmed gowns and white trousers from the church? Yet perhaps they would have been out of place in this setting. It was a time when God looked on the heart, not the outward appearance. The first to be baptized was a man who must have weighed sixteen stone. How on earth would Ray and Frank hold him up? They took a good grip on him, lowering him carefully into the water. As they lifted him up, his knees sagged and in he went again. The two men struggling to hold him decided the easiest way to deal with the problem was to float him to the bank. There he lay half in the water and half out, communing with God in a language he hadn't learned. He had received the baptism in the Holy Spirit as he had come up out of the water. Before too long, the bank looked like a battlefield, as others also had to be floated out of the water. I realized that traditionalism had been bypassed. I was the only one who worried about what people wore. God certainly didn't. Some of the Wyomio people took us to a neighboring village. On this visit, we had brought some of our congregation to share the blessings of the meetings. Frank and I were given the honor of sleeping in the priest's room, while those who traveled with us were given a mattress on the floor of the meeting house besides the local people. A mother and her unmarried adult daughter were horrified. How could they undress and sleep elbow to elbow with all of these people? 
They pulled seats round to make themselves a corner where they could undress in private. Hey, boy, see the paquijas, the local whispered, digging each other in the ribs, giggling spread from one to the other. No Maoris worry about bunking down in their clothes whenever they sleep in the meeting house. They always sleep this way for important events like funerals or weddings. Those two women decided that campaigning amongst the Maoris was not for them. It seemed to be the ultimate triumph of the gospel over evil when we saw a house on the hillside gleaming in the brightest red paint. You've painted your house, Frank commented to the owners. Yes, we turned beer into paint. Since we became Christians, we've saved all the money we used to spend on beer, and in six weeks we had enough to buy the paint. It's better to have paint on your house than beer in your stomachs, Frank said. Everyone agreed. Even in revival, the enemy kept up his work. The Maoris of Ellerslie were being stirred into a spiritual revolt. Ray struggled long and hard to solve the problem, but Paihama, the main agitator, was adamant that they must have their own meeting. For a time, the people maintained the unity between us, and we hoped the danger of them leaving us was over. You know, Frank... If they go, they will soon split and disintegrate. Their self-styled leaders are too inexperienced in church leadership, Ray said. Before the problem was settled, God shocked us with his leading. Right in the middle of this revival, Ray was called to preach in Canada for three months. He wrestled with the invitation for a week. Leaving the church even for a limited time would not be easy. Then he remembered he said that Frank was ready to captain his own ship. Frank, I'm accepting this invitation to Canada. I want you to look after the church while I am away. Frank gasped. Look after the church? Ray, I don't feel ready. He realized the church must not lose its impetus or power. Most other assemblies of God churches in New Zealand at that time were small and hardly recognizable as Pentecostal. The Queen Street Assembly in Auckland was the exception. By Ray's standards, even that was conservative. None were seeing growth like the mission. If it was to continue in revival power, Frank must move in the same way and with the same anointing as Ray did. On the last Sunday before his departure, Ray publicly committed the church into Frank's care. Placing his hands on Frank's head, he prayed, Lord, give your servant a double portion of my spirit and let my mantle fall on your servant as Elijah did on Elisha. Frank staggered backwards as he experienced the transference of faith from Ray into his own spirit. With it came a sense of divine authority. Ray burst into prophecy. You shall keep your eyes on Jesus. Look not unto man, but unto God. Frank crashed to the floor the only time it ever happened to him. Those words of prophecy would be Frank's policy for the rest of his life. Filled with this new authority, he was ready for the challenge of pastoring on his own again.